Infirmary Media. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Hey, brother. How you doing? What's going on, man? What's going on, bro? How you doing? So tonight, we have a huge special guest in poop culture. We have a fellow New Yorker. Needs a little introduction. Daniel Baldwin. Welcome to the poop culture, man. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. I mean, it was a big surprise to us earlier today when uh, you know I was talking to Rachel and she said... Well, how about Daniel Baldwin? Yeah, fuck yeah. Let's let's do it. Let's get him on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We said, well, well there's that, a guy we can talk to. It, that beats that beats the hell out of that guy's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get him on. <laughs> no, absolutely. He didn't kill himself. Not. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like as everybody knows, obviously you're part of the the, uh, the Baldwin brother universe. Of uh, fantastic actors and entertainers, you guys are uh, you're number two in line of the brothers. That there are actually two girls in the family, Beth and Jane. So the order of the of the siblings goes: Beth, Alec, Daniel, Billy, Jane, and Stephen. So I'm number three of the siblings, number two of the boys, but number one in your heart. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh heartwarming. You know, you grew up in Long Island, right? I did. I grew up in Massapequa. Big family. You know, I read some things like your father was a history teacher, coach. He was. Well, my dad was a history teacher um, at Massapequa High School. We went to Alfred G. Burner High School. So on Thanksgiving Day, we played my father in football for the title for the bragging rights for the whole town. <laughs> How did that go? Who won and the it game? Was the last, it was the last game of the season. And you could pretty much go 0 and 7, but you had to win the Burden Massapequa game. I played right. my father in 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. Lost all three years. My <laughs> senior year, I lost to him 3 nothing on the last play of the game, a field goal, 29 yards by Keith Hancock, that cocksucker from Massapequa High School. <laughs> you were like a star for the team, right? I won most valuable player of that game in a losing effort, and I'm still to this day. You know, I, there's lots of things I could trade, including the left testicle for a victory in my senior year. But, um, yeah, no, that was uh, that was a tough one to, to swallow, no pun intended. <laughs> How did you grow up in a household going against your arch nemesis football coach? Like, how did that – did he try to hurt you purposely or what? Um, no, I mean, it, it just – my I felt worse as I look back for my mother. You know, I mean – um, I think secretly deep down, she always wanted us, you know, to beat my father. Um, yeah. And, and uh, but I mean, my mother was, you know, Switzerland. You know, she just sat there. Oh, boys, now be nice. Don't hurt each other. Um, you know, uh, it was uh, it instilled a lot of competition in us for sure. We we're very competitive as children in that house. Did you guys kind of carry that comp- competitiveness over into when you all started making movies and TV and kind of competing you know, against I- each other's careers? I never looked at it that way. Um, I, I was probably the, mo- the more successful. Well, no, not probably. I was definitely the more successful athlete in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when I watched Alec progress, because we kind of got into it in chronological order, um, and I think there's no denying he's for sure had the most success and accolades as, a, as an actor. Certainly right. he's made the most money. <laughs> um, uh I've always just been very happy for him and very proud of him, you know, for for being able to do what he's done. Remember, it's a it's a double-edged sword. So I've always said being one of the Baldwins, and particularly being Alex's brother, has always opened doors that may not have necessarily opened for me without that. But at the same time, it's never gotten me a job, and it's pre- definitely prevented me. Because remember, when one does something... It's, it's a group that's assumed. So when mm-hmm. I would get in trouble for 
you know, my past drug history and, and I've been sober for a long, long time now. Everyone paid for it, in, in, you know, as far as the press was concerned. When Alec had bad divorces and different things that have happened to him and some of his stuff he's had with the paparazzi, all of us, therefore, were hard time with the paparazzi, tough on the press, blah, 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 blah. Did you guys kind of stay tight uh, through all the problems that you would have individually? Um. Yeah, yeah, we were we were uh, we're pretty close, you know. Um, I think that like any family, when you grow up, um, my father instilled a certain pack rat mentality in us. You know, the hardest person to be in my house was one of the girls, um, for sure. I I remember the first time poor Jane, my little sister. But I remember the kid's name today, Frank Callie, this nice kid from Long Island. Jane was like, she waited 17 years before she bought a boy home. Oh, and she man. brings this boy home, and she brings him home uh, for the holidays. And he's sitting down, and she brings him in, here's this kid, his voice is still cracky, he's got pimples all over his face. <laughs> and, Jane, and Jane walks him in and goes, you know, everybody, this is Frank, and Alec, Billy, Steve, and I are all in the den of my mother's home. And we looked over, <laughs> and we said, how you doing? And I said, down. So he sits down, and Jane runs into the, into the kitchen to attend to some of the duties for dinner. And at some point, at the point when when Bert Young looks at Rocky and goes, "Hey, Rock, are you dirty in my sister? Are you dirty in her?" <laughs> we all start laughing. <laughs> you dirty in my sister? And next thing, in the back of the room, we hear, <laughs> and I turn around, look at him, and I go, "What's so fucking funny, Frank? You think that's funny? You think that's funny?" Why do you think that's funny, Frank? Are you? Why do you think that's funny, Frank? Are you dirty in my? And next thing you know, all four of us are on our feet, and we're standing over this kid going, "You're fucking my little sister, you cocksucker! You're fucking my sister!" And next thing you know, he got up and seat crying and ran out the back door of the house. <laughs> fifteen minutes. Oh my god. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes later, Jane comes out with bunt cake and iced tea. You know, where's Frank? I don't know. He left. He left. He <laughs> said he didn't want to be with uh, you. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, was, it was. It was definitely harder to be one of the girls in the family. Yeah. But... <laughs> how how far apart are you and your brothers? Obviously, Alex is a couple years older than you, right? And then you're a couple years older than Billy and Steven? That's his 60. Alex is 58. Um, I'll be 56 this year. Steven's, uh, Billy's 54. Jane's 52 and Steven's 52. And the, one of the things about Alex, a lot of people don't give him credit for it. He's fucking hilarious. So go through, go through the list of all the great actors of our time. All the way from Brando on, put them up, put them up, and say, how many have won an Emmy, won a Golden Globe, and been either nominated or won an Oscar and a Tony Award? How many? None except no. Alec and Brando. Not De Niro, not Pacino, not but you know, go all through all the list. None of them have gone all four of those categories. And the only one more than him is Rita Moreno, who's actually won on. A, a Golden Globe, won an Emmy, won an Oscar, <clears throat> won a Tony, and won a Grammy Award. She's won all five. You better start singing, right? I'm thinking <laughs> I'm gonna, I, I might go back to losing. I'm thinking I might go back to losing the left left testicle, putting a wig on, getting in there as an alpha soprano. What do you think, boy? Sign me up. <laughs> I don't know. You could give us a few bars right here. See how <laughs> <Yeah>. it goes. <laughs> okay, you ready? <clears throat> Okay, you ready? I'm ready because you, you didn't expect it to go oh, yeah. high up the scale. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Right. Here we go. What the fuck? <laughs> I just picture birds flying outside your house yeah. now. Well, now, I'm not warmed up right now, but had I warmed up, I could have gone a little higher. So I'm thinking maybe there's still a shot for the grant. I, I feel I, like you're a shoe-in. I think we have to start it right now. We're going to kick off this campaign. Start the movement. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> hey, so last year, yeah. I'm uh, I'm a huge Big Brother fan. And uh, season 18 is only a couple weeks away. A couple months ago, we had uh, Judd Daughtry on. He was on Big Brother 15. And he's going to come back, and we're going to talk some Big Brother. But you just came from Big Brother. You were on uh, Celebrity Big Brother last year. Unfortunately, you only lasted a little while. Uh, but are you a big fan of the show? You know, I, I got to tell you, I, I all in all, I'm happy. I knew when I walked in the door. Literally, I knew within two days who was going to win. I knew. Now, understand, I, I I never 
delusion myself with what those shows are about today. So, you know, when you're up against, um, uh, when I did uh, uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, the U.S. version, and you're in there against Senjaya, you know what I mean? And, and people from American Idol, where their voting base can be, you know, sudsing their hair in the shower with one hand and speed dialing their vote with the other. Oh, hand. that's where you're going. So when you're when you're on a, a British show, your chances besides Gary Busey won one time. That's the only American to ever win the show. So your chances of defeating somebody on their home turf like that are pretty pretty rare. And and what happened with Gary? The reason why he won was because it was a mercy vote. Gary went on there, and, and you know, and Gary is not the same Gary that we knew 25 years ago. He had right. a terrifying motorcycle accident, and he's, you know, so Gary's, you know, and I love Gary, and I've known Gary a long time, but he's got a couple of screws that are a little loose, for sure. Oh, yeah. So Gary, so, so, so Gary goes on there, and those guys picked on him, and the British didn't like that. They didn't like that the other Brits made fun of him and teased him and beat him up, and they, and they mercy voted him to win. That backfired on the Brits. But when I got there, I knew James Hill. I took one look at the kid. He's chiseled out of stone. He's super handsome. He's very humble. He's a nice guy. And I went, how do you beat that kid? And he's a Brit. You know, so, so I, I, real, I realized that had it been important, if the show's producers were smarter, and they're not, but if they were smarter, they would have said, the longer you stay in, the more money you make. Now, if they did it like that, instead of the way they do it, which is as long as you don't walk out the doors and quit and you don't do something to be thrown out, you get paid the exact same amount that you negotiated to come on. But oh. if there was something to be said, there was something to be said about each vote, it's another 25 grand or some crap like that. Oh, yeah. Then you'd watch people willing to do things. You know, I wasn't willing to sell myself down the river with a Janet Dixon. Janice Dickinson and her antics. And really, it didn't matter that much to me because I was already going to make my salary and keep my dignity. Now, if they told me if I cut Janice Dickinson's head off on national television for another 100,000, <laughs> I would have I cut her to pieces but, and people would have understood why, you know? Right. So when you watch Farrah Abraham screaming and hollering and giving all that energy away, and I would pull her aside and go, honey, why are you doing that? None of the things that I did that were good and that were funny, any of it aired, none of it aired because all that really sells are you screaming and, t and tearing into someone. I could have done that, but why would I do that? I got to stay in there for eight days and I got paid all that money. <laughs> so, so you actually won in that, a sense. If you're not going to win, if you're not going to win or don't have a chance to win and there's no financial, I'm not selling a book. And I don't have a website that sells girls dildos and, and the stuff that Farrah does. And I, I don't need people to drive to my site like Jenna does and some of the other people to, to procure my income. I'm, you know, since then have made multiple movies and continue to do things that I do on television. Or so it, it, there was no incentive for me. And I told the producers when I got out, I went, you had made it more interesting for me financially that it was worth my, you know, accusing Austin and James of being gay and getting them all riled up and accuse this one and that one of doing, you know, then that would have made sense to me. I go, but otherwise I got to cook, keep my mouth shut. I made four or five good friends. I mean, James and I text each other all the time. So he's a great, he's a great guy. I'm glad that I made friends with him. I think that kid has such amazing movie star potential. If he, I don't know if he knows how to act, but He's got the looks. He's a good kid. I'm happy for him that he won in the storm term. Part of the question I was going to ask you is, you know, what's the big difference from the celebrity house to the regular house? And one of the similarities that you just said, and Judd said the same thing, is a lot of things that happened in the house got cut out in the American version for him as well. He said, like, funny things or, like, you know, when the, uh, the, the quote-unquote, like, stars of the show got into fights, they, they cut those out and just showed what they wanted to show. So it sounds like they kind of do the same thing on the celebrity side. But Remember, too, that they when you sign um, the contracts, they're very, very smart. When you sign the contract, um, they have the right to portray you any way they want. They have all the power. So if they don't like you or if they decide that, you know, that, that it behooves them to pit certain people you know, and they can they can also edit things whatever the way they want so they can literally have you sitting in in the smoking pit let's say and i'm having a conversation with big love right now 
Okay, so he and I are talking, and they turn around, and then they show. They take something Big Love said in a completely different conversation. They keep the camera on me like I'm listening, and they play his voice going, well, I hate that guy. I never liked him. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, do you work for these that, people? Because uh, isn't that what you do on this podcast with me? Meanwhile, you you said that about somebody that you were talking about in a conversation that's not even on the show, and they lay your voice in for another conversation so that the audience gets all riled up thinking, "Oh my God, what a bastard he is!" I thought he really liked Tommy and Baba. Meanwhile, you didn't, weren't even talking about Tommy. Does that make you kind of reserve some of the things that you would say and like? If they're recording right at the time, and are you are you on guard all the time then? Um, I you know I, I made a choice. Um, I, I had a couple of rules that I told them um, at the time, and still in the sh- and still in my life, I'm engaged. And so I said, as long as you're not going to put me in a situation where if the girls start, you know, I want you to know if girls start taking off their clothes, which I've seen on other shows that they're nude sunbathing or they jump in the pool or whatever. I'm not going to do anything to offend my wife. You know, my, my wife would expect me to get up and walk out of that room right, right, right. or do whatever. I go, so if you don't be in a position where I have to do something that's offensive to my wife or my marriage, I go, then, then, then I'm cool, man. You can, you can let me have it. Listen, there's no, there's no real sport in hunting in a zoo. Exactly. And I don't know right. if you know what I'm, yeah. no, but if you're going to go yeah. in a zoo and they're in a cage with a high powered rifle, well, there's no question to me that I possess a high-powered rifle. There's no question. And I'm a pretty good marksman with it. So if you're going to put me up against somebody like Janice Dickinson, and I look at her and I think, gosh, I remember that, that amazingly beautiful model back in the 70s and what she looked like. And now I look at the shell of what she is and you know all the surgeries and how just ridiculous what a cartoon character it is. And I think, do I really need to assassinate this kid? I remember when I was uh, um, the host of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, we were sitting in like stadium seating, so they were kind of, you know, um, um, various heights, the seats, they were like benches, like, in, like in, a, in a football game. And she was sitting in front of me, and the host said to me, she said, Daniel, you know, it was well-documented, your difficulties, you and your brother Stephen, that you had with Janice Dickinson. As you sit behind her right now, and you're on live TV, tell us, what do you think? What comes to your mind? And I said, JFK. <laughs> and, then I, and then I went back and to the left. Back and to the left. You know, so, so, so and, and I mean to say that, do I, do, is it worth going on television and just blasting people? You know, and I watched them. I watched how, how insane. It was really difficult to be in that house. Let me tell you something. It was very nerve-wracking. There was a lot of attitudes and everything. But I mean, when you ask for the major difference, it's way different to have to be in a house with people that are so, um, they, they feel so entitled. I mean, I don't know about Jersey Shore and these other regular shows. I'm sure that's a lot of big personalities and, and I'm sure they screen those kids so they get the ultimate amount of conflict that they can. But you put celebrities that have had some notoriety and the poor British looked at the Americans and thought, my God, are they all such monsters? I mean, there were some real monstrous characters in that house, and the Brits didn't even know what to do with it. And it's weird because they, they've never brought that show over and made a version for the U.S. And maybe if they did do a U.S. version and they did pay the celebrities for actually staying in the house, because mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be interested in watching it now that you, you told me that. It doesn't sound like there's any incentive. The only incentive that I saw that maybe you would have had to stay in the house was that I read you were trying to beat how, as far as uh, Steven got in the house. Oh gosh, I didn't care. I didn't care. You know, oh, you I, didn't I, care. Yeah, okay. I was, no, I, I was, I was, like I said, had there been, there was a few opportunities when I could have really crushed a couple of people in there. And I remember holding my tongue because I thought to myself, you know, I don't know what the advantage is to blasting this person. And I, and I, like I said, if you made it, you know, a tiered payment system that the longer you want, oh, watch out fast, people with her. And I think if you wanted to really do it, you should do, um, you know, like a let's do like a celebrity slug out or something where you just put people and you're going to beat the shit out of each other <laughs> once a week. Now that yeah, I would like, watch. Yeah, that, would, that's yeah, gonna, that sounds like a Fox show. Yeah, you know what? But, but let's come up with the show then. Let's come up with the concept. Let's, Let's do come it. up with a show, oversized headgear, and let them, let them MMA and let the audience pit them against each other. Girls against girls, guys against guys, 10 celebrities, five girls, five guys in each house, and the house has to win and just let them 
beat the no no the only thing you can do is tap out but you can't tap out inside the first two minutes so if you get a really good hold on you can beat the shit out of them for two minutes and they sit there unconscious and take it let's do it yeah remember when they did that back in the day they did the uh the celebrity boxing with uh who was it willis was on it yeah i thought yeah, you were yeah. gonna say uh I thought you were going to say celebrity death match. No, they did celebrity death match, but that was claymation. Yeah. <laughs> let's do let's do celebrity running man. Remember the, yes. the movie Running Man? Yes. Uh, the Arnold movie, and they track the guy through the tunnel system and everything, and you just and you send all your. Is Richard you know, Dawson still alive? Richard Dawson, yeah, Dawson was amazing in that. Yeah, he was amazing. No, but we could bring somebody in to play Dawson. Who would our Dawson be? Let's get uh, uh, Louis Anderson. Yeah, Louis. No, no, no. Let's get uh, uh, <laughs> Pat Sajak. <laughs> no, no, no. Simon no, Cowell, Billy Crystal. Let's get Billy Crystal. You're going. You're going way up the ladder. That might be tough to get. Yeah. Well, Dawson was no youngster when he did Running Man. No, he, he was sixties. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then they shot him through a billboard sign at the end. Yeah, I'm all right with shooting Billy through a billboard sign. <laughs> Pretty sure he'd be on board for that. <laughs> Howie Mandel's done his fair share of uh, game shows. Yeah, he... now, Howie's perfect. Howie's perfect. We need somebody yeah. to get a little, a little grease on him. Let's get greasy yeah. Howie in there. Perfect. You've been on your fair share of reality shows, though. Like you were just talking about uh, I'm a Celebrity. You did that. You did uh, Fit Club. You did... Uh, celebrity rehab. You know what I do though? I do when they first. I did the first celebrity rehab. I did the first fit club. I did the only. I'm a celebrity man. So when they first come out with the idea, so I can't be the 19th or 29th or 58th guy that goes through it. I, you know, I, I look at it and I say, is that something that I that I want to do? And you know, it's not my first choice of what to do. But I've got kids, and I've got right. you know, and, and it's and, and and when so when I go through and they say, do you want to do the TV series? You're the dad of Lenny and Squiggy, and we're reviving, you know, the, uh, the television has lost all uh, of that. Yeah, it has. There's such shit out there now. You know, you had some tough stretches on these shows, but now I understand kind of where you're coming from because you're getting, you got paid anyway, so who gives a shit? But the other thing I was going to ask you is that, are these enjoyable to do or you just do it for a paycheck? Or do celebrities do it for a paycheck? And it sounds like maybe that's just the case. Well, I think, I think you know, I remember sitting with Dr. Drew and and... When I chose to do that show, I chose to do that show because I had a well-documented history in my drug addiction. I had been sober already. And I said to Drew, I said, you know, I'm sober, right? I mean, I don't need to come into Pasadena uh, and and get sober. He goes, no, I realize that, but I think it would be an interesting perspective for some of these other people. And so his eyes were bright and wide open, and I think he really believed he was going to do this interesting rehab show where he was going to have people. But there's a problem with that. When you bring celebrities in and you turn a camera on them, it's, it's an absolute cocktail for disaster. You know, so... And on my particular season, I think two or three of those people are dead now. Jeff is dead yep. um, from ta- from Taxi. Um, another one of them died. Uh, oh, what's your name? Uh, uh, who just died? The wrestler. China just died. Yeah, China just died. Point. The point of it was, I'm in New York doing the Today Show, and it was something to do with uh, either Charlie Sheen had gotten in trouble again or Lindsay or whatever, and they asked me if I'd come on and speak with um, um, Matt Lauer. And so I, I'm sitting in the green room and in comes Dr. Drew. And I looked at him and I said, and, and you know, I got along fine with Drew Pinsky. He's, he's a nice enough guy. And I said to him, um, I said, you know, it doesn't work, right? And he looked at me and he goes, it doesn't, does it? I said, no, man, it doesn't. I go, you can't put celebrities in front of a camera and expect them to be totally honest and go through the therapeutical things that are done in a rehab and not worry about, you know, being seen or depicted in a certain way. I go, you get some raw moments, but you're never really going to get it going. And then when you would leave, we'd be left in, in the, in the, in the tutelage uh, of some of the worst monster producers of all time. So <laughs> Drew would leave after it looked like he was running this tight little ship. And then these guys would be like, hey, girls, why don't you take your bras off and jump in the pool and see if you can get the boys to come in? And they'd whisper little ideas into their heads. And next you know, the girls are taking their tops off in the pool. And I'm looking at the, at, the, at the one clinician that's still there at nighttime, and I go, this would never happen in rehab. Why are you letting them do that? But from the production standpoint, it makes brilliant television. Right, and, you right. know, and they and they and they love. So then Drew comes the next day, and I say, 
Well, their girls were swimming around with friends from outside the facility came to visit them. Two of them had their tops off in the pool. And my wife's home saying, why are you doing this show that you're already sober with people that are naked swimming in a rehab? And so I said, I'm done. I got to go. And so I left the show. But when I told Drew that, he said, yeah, no, I know it doesn't work. And at the end of the day, you know, it, does, it may indeed, you know, hurt someone's sobriety or hurt someone's attempt. Meanwhile, two months after I left that, doing that episode with Matt Lauer, Drew signs on to do season two and he did season three and four and five. You know, so, I mean, at the end of the day, was the most important thing really helping those people that needed help? Because some of those people really needed the help. They oh, absolutely. Obviously, yeah. obviously, because uh, a couple of them are dead. You know, so it sounds like uh, in reality, yeah. the most important thing was, as always, probably money. Well, yeah, you know, there, there you have it. So, you know, whether I, when I left that show, I had to forego. That was when you walk out the door, you give up the money. And I thought, right. I'm just not staying here. The reason why I did the show was why shouldn't my sobriety get as much attention as, as when I got in trouble when I was using. So I thought that was actually a decent way to let people in Hollywood know, hey, he's sober now. You know, and watching the zoo that went on in that show too, you know, I, just, I stood back and said, okay, man, go ahead if that's what you want to do. And, and I tried to help people, but it just wasn't worth being on there. That was, uh, that was one of the ones I wish I hadn't done. Well, you probably didn't want to get into a, a situation where it would bring you down. Yeah, affect you. Yeah, you know, listen, of what control do you really have over anyone else's actions? But your, um, when it was, it was sold to me, the Bill of Rights, by the producers of the show and everybody, that it was going to, I thought it would be quite compelling to see somebody talk about some of those things that led them to their addiction and, and then the process of trying to help someone. I thought that would actually be really cool TV. You know, reality TV, we all looked at it as people that have been on, and, you know, and been around the business like yourselves for many years. I looked at it at first and I thought, well, this is never going to last. Well, we were all wrong. It's, it's been around. This was, this, it's the Donald Trump of television. <laughs> no one ever thought it was going to go as far as it has. And here it is. It's cheap to produce. It's cheap to produce. It's cheap to make, you know, and, and, and sitting there watching other trains wrecking can be quite compelling from time to time. So, you know, it's found its niche and people are watching it still. And, and sadly, because of that, quality television isn't really being produced anymore because it would be far more expensive and it's more complicated to do. And that's what America is. You know, America is that is, is a giant Vegas roller coaster, you know, so yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, it's sad. Well, since we're talking about fiction, let's move to uh, a fiction movie that you were in that you played with uh, alongside James Woods in the movie Vampires. Yes. Which is a movie that I love. Uh, John Carpenter is probably my favorite horror director of all time. I mean, he's made iconic movies. As I'm talking to you right now, I have Escape from New York. I have like three of his posters right in front of me. Yeah. What was it like working with John Carpenter? I mean, was that an amazing thing? Was it really tough? How was that? No, John and I and his wife, Sandy, got along fabulously. Um, We really liked each other. I really respect John. He's you know, obviously the most iconic and greatest horror director. Um, his genre is his own and has been throughout my entire lifetime. I'd say before him was probably Hitchcock. And um, I don't know if anyone surpassed, uh, you know, people will talk about Wes and some other people since John, but he, he's definitely, um, he's still the man in my eyes. And um, <clears throat> he was a great guy to work with. It was quite interesting to see, um, how humble he was, you know, uh, he, he was, I don't think John ever realized what, how powerful, how powerful he was. He did a great thing one time. I took a meeting. Um, he and I be, remained friends for, and still are friends, but we just don't spend that much time with each other anymore. But there was a, there was that wave, um, of, of time when Barry Levinson did the show. I was on homicide and a lot of big movie directors were getting involved in television and movie producer Jerry Bruckheimer, of course, has done so many shows and so on. So anyway, um, we got approached by Imagine Entertainment and, uh, Ron Howard and, and Brian Grazer are going to take this meeting with, John Carpenter and I, we've come up with an idea for a TV show. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we go over to Imagine. This was probably like mid-90s, early 90s? Yeah, it's like mid-90s. Right? This is just after um, Vampires came out. Oh, okay. Oh, so like the end of the 90s. Okay. Vampires and, Vampires and Homicide, late, late in the 90s. 
And so we get into this big, like, like out of a movie, this big, long table, you know, with like probably 10 chairs on each side and one chair at the top. And, and there's Grazer and, 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 and Ron and, um, and all these women of the, of the other 20 chairs, it's me and John and like 18 of these other chairs are all girls. And, uh, and, and so we're talking and, and, and Ron's very humble and kind of quiet and he just likes to listen. And Grazer does a lot of the talking, you know, and so he goes out ah, and somewhere within the conversation, John's got the big straw hat on and, uh, and Grazer says, well, yeah, 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 we all know what you do, John. But, but the point that I'm trying to make is where do we, and he goes to go and John goes, I beg your pardon. He goes, well, I mean, we all know what you do. We all know you scare people. That's, that's your forte. That's you. He goes. And you just kind of, oh, John, don't let him have it. Please don't let him have it. Like, like this means going so well. And John goes, you know, guys like you annoy <laughs> me. He said, guys like you annoy me because you think you know what I do. And so he turned around, he put his two fingers on the table, and he got really quiet. And he started walking. He said, because the elevator, the elevator door opens, and he walks into the elevator with his two fingers. And he pushes, and he goes, and then you see the finger push nine, and the elevator doors close. And then he starts walking again, and he goes, I'm in the elevator, and you obviously know I'm going to the ninth floor. And then the doors open, and in a little piece of paper, I look down at it, and it says, 919. So now we all know we're looking for 919. And he steps his fingers a couple of times onto the table, and he walks out and he goes, and you see that annoying sign that says 901 to 918, 902, and you look and you make the left towards and you go by 901, and then he got, and he's walking with his fingers the entire time and he's getting more intense, going 904, 910, 917, he goes, and there you are at 919. And you know he's in the room. We've been chasing this guy the entire movie, and he's right on the other side of the store. And you reach down, and you start to turn the handle, and the door starts to creep. And the guy's not there. Ah! And he slams the table with his fist, and everyone in the fucking room, <laughs> the girls were screaming. They were screaming because he got real good and he's not there. And then he slams the table and he looks up and he goes, you see, you think that the reason why I'm famous is because I make you go, ah, he said, that's not why. He said, the reason why I'm good at what I do is because I keep you on the edge of your fucking seat in between, <laughs> ah, which is what sets the ah up. And he got up and walked out of the fucking Oh, room. man. And I looked over at him and I thought, you know what? Yeah. That's the fact. What makes him great is that you're, you're sitting there and you know it's coming. It's a fucking horror movie. But are you compelled and on the edge of your seat and nervous and wait because you know it's coming? And the answer is, yes, that's what makes him John Carpenter. That's why, that's he's, why he, they've been, he's been dubbed the master of horror for a reason. Yeah, he's the master of disaster. I, I wish that you would have another flick that would come out that would be, uh, be big. It's been a little bit, but... Uh... That's cool. It's a cool story. You know, you never know, Johnny. I think he, I think, you know, he does, he does, people don't realize too, he writes all his own music, he plays almost all his own music. I mean, he does it all. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Dude, you mentioned Homicide a couple times, and I was a fan of Homicide. I was, I was in high school when Homicide was out, so it was a cool show. I liked it. Mm -hmm. You know, you played the tough guy, you know, Detective Felton, and you were on for three seasons. And then you get into that shootout, you know, you and your partners get shot, you come back, and then the next season rolls, I think it was season four, you're not there, and then season five, they decide to kill you off when you're not there? Well, here's what, here's what happened. So, when you sign a TV deal, it used to be back then, you signed a five-year deal. And if the show is 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 it qualifies for syndication, if you go into your fourth year. So you have to make a certain amount of shows in order to, to, reap, to, um, uh, to reach the requirements of syndication. Um, and so when you make that five-year deal, it's, it's, not in, it's not written in stone, but it's pretty well understood in Hollywood that if they pick you up for season four as a courtesy, the network and the, and the producer of the show come to you privately and say, okay, we'd like to renegotiate your contract. And we now have qualified because with homicide, 
the, the deal with Barry and and and, uh, and the powers that be on the show was we're not paying particularly me and Ned Beatty. We were the ones that had worked the most in television and had you know right. pretty high quotes. Although Andre Brower is a great actor and Melissa Leo and you know Kyle Secor and all these different people, none of them had a TV quote. They hadn't done multiple TV series like I did at the time, nor were they really that famous. And I already was known and then had a known family and so on. So. Um, I took a big pay cut to do the show. And I said, that's okay. I believe in the show. I think it's a great show. So we do season one and then we get picked up for season two and then we finish season three and Tom Fontana flies up to uh, Toronto where I'm doing a movie and, uh, and I'm directing the film. And he says to me, I just wanted to come to you to tell you, we're not going to offer anyone any more money, even though we've been picked up for season four. And I looked at him and I said, well, why is that? I said, so you and Barry and the other people are going to make more money. You're qualified for syndication. and You own the show. I don't own any piece of the show. I said, and it's funny because every time it's time to sell the show and fly somebody out to the East Coast to do Letterman and do Good Morning America and go back to California and do the Tonight Show, you don't ask Brower, you don't ask Andre, you don't ask, or you don't ask Kyle because they can't get on that show, but I can. So you lean on me to do the publicity for the show and, and use me as your horse, but at the same time, you're not going to pay me any more money. And believe me when I say I took a dramatic pay I said, then kill my character and write me off the show. And they, and they looked at me, and I, I think they expected I was just going to be happy with the fact that I was on this award-winning show, which I was happy for that to be on that show for three seasons. But I wasn't willing to get beat up anymore financially because it's eight months right. in Baltimore and it doesn't allow me to do any other shows. And I felt that Fontana and those guys were very selfish in that assessment. And so he left it open for me. You know, if you want to come back, you can come back. I think there was a lot of um, mental and, 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 and games and stuff that went on between Tom Fontana particularly and I. Tom didn't really care for me very much. And, um, and, and I, you know, he, he proved that in a lot of his writings and things that he would do. Um, there was a, a time when Alec was supposed to do the show and he asked me, do you think Alec would do it? And so I, I went to Alec and I asked him, he said, yeah, I would love to do your show. So they write the episode and they send it to Alec and they send, they give it to me. And the episode is Alec playing chess most of the time with, with, um, Andre Brower. And so Alec went, is your character's name Pendleton? And I said, no, it's Felton. He goes, why did you write this whole episode for me and, and Pendleton? He goes, I don't need a job, you know, as a guest star on a TV show. He said, I, 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 I'd be doing the show because I wanted to work with my brother and, and play. And so I said, of course, I said, Tom, why would you not make my character the Pendleton character in this and have Alec and I work together? He goes, no, we're not doing that. This is the episode I wrote. So Alec said, okay, well, no, I don't want to do the show then. So three episodes later, Richard Belzer's character, Munch, in a scene with me, leans over to, to uh, Ned Beatty and goes, yeah, it's like the movie, the remake of the movie The Getaway. Did you ever see that? And, and Ned Beatty goes, no, I never saw it. And Belzer goes, yeah, nobody did. This is fucked. And he throws, a, he throws a dig at my brother. And, I, and I, So, of course, I read that, and I walked into his office, and I went, really, bro? You, you're going you're gonna to take shots at my brother through a script of a show I'm on? I'm like, what's fucking wrong with you, man? You know, why would you ever do something? But, but that was kind of the, the kind of stuff he did. You know, he, 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 he obviously was the boss. And he had, you know, the ability to, to make people sit and fetch and blah, blah. And when they didn't sit and fetch and told them to fuck off like I did, you, you end up off the show. And that's okay. I lived to see another day. I was on call case for multiple years. And, you know, I did other stuff. And that's all right. I mean, and, 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 the, and, the, and the really sad thing about, about that relationship that he had with a couple of actors on the shows, we all would sit around and say, God, he's such a good writer. He's really, he really is a good writer. He makes compelling, interesting television. I would work with Tom again. I just uh, He's just a dick. I just would stay in my hotel. I would stay in my hotel. I would stay in my hotel. Uh, yeah, it's more. crazy cuz like, you know, all these years go by and like, you know, obviously unless you told that story before, like how the hell would somebody know cuz it was just so weird how it all happened. How it was just like, all right, now he's gone and then we're going to take this regular character and kill him off years later. It was fucking stupid and I never got it. Yeah, I think I think they left uh they left some stuff undone. I had some crazy shit happen to me on that show too. Yeah, in, in real life, there was a there was a lot of um. It was it was such a. We would sit there and we would wait for the episode. You know, when they they give it to us, it was um. You know, because 
it, it was really so well written. We, we really were spoiled to be on a show that was written as well as that. You know, Yash and some of those guys that wrote those episodes, and Tom included, you know, they just wrote such interesting, cool stuff. It was really a fun show. You know, I, I remember we, how many people are up in the production office waiting for the script to come out. You know, we, 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 get, we, were, we were pretty... Uh, we were pretty high on that. That was a, and that was the time too in our life, you know, late twenties, early thirties, where your testosterone is just flying really high, and you know, you you think you can you can beat the world. And um, but I liked I liked all in all, I liked the experience of doing homicide. But I wouldn't have done anything any different. When somebody turns around and uh, you know you look in the well, and if you've had an opportunity to drink from the well, it becomes your responsibility to replenish the well. So that other people after you can also take a sip. But if you're going to stick your mug in left and right and just keep drinking while other people around right. you are rationing, that's bullshit. I agree. That's not the way to be. A, that's that's not the way to be the leader, man. That's not a leader. You know, that's a bleeder. There's a big difference. Well, we'll we'll take it from there into your own form of directing and writing. The wisdom to know the difference. Um, right. Now, I, I know it was on the, mm -hmm. the film festival circuit for a while. How do you put yourself as a director? Like, you, you've worked with all these people over the years. You know, you've worked with, like, you worked with John Carpenter. Do you take a little piece of each one of these people? Yeah. Yeah, there's great, there's great lessons to be learned by all directors. I've worked with Oliver Stone and Barry Levinson and John Carpenter and Stephen Frears. And you know, I've worked with some pretty big directors, Michael Mann. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I, 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 I take, um, little elements of different things that I learned from them, you know, from, um, there, and there's different sciences and different ways of doing things. You know, John taught me, one of the greatest things he taught me was with the camera. Um, and that was John would roll two cameras side by side, one closer than the other and simultaneously roll multiple cameras because he didn't want to tax his actors plus Remember, John's coming from that more old school where, you know, you didn't right. CGI stuff. He would have the, the, the really great special effects people lay the, the hoses, you know, with blood in your neck and then put the stuff over it and, and paint it perfect so that there was a guy behind the seat in the, in, the, in, the, in the Jeep when she bites my neck and he just squeezed those blotters and shot the blood out of my neck. And you know, that takes hours and hours and you know, six, seven hours of sitting in a chair and having those, those craftsmen and, and, and masters do their work. And you get one shot at that. You're not shooting that stuff all over right. the wardrobe again and having her, you got to get it right. You know, so John showed me particularly in the acting too, um, you know, the, the, the advantages of having multiple cameras is what I'll always take from John. Um, um, and, and so, you know, I remember with Levinson, you know, we all really wanted to impress Barry. I mean, he had made so many iconic films, and and um, and he directed the first episode of Homicide. And and the first day, the first shoot that we did was Andre Brower and I are walking through um, this parking structure, and you know they have all these white Cavaliers, the detectives in in Baltimore Drive. And Andre's left the keys upstairs, uh, and he had to run back up and get them, and couldn't remember where he parked the car. And so we're, we're doing, we're walking from car to car using the keys. It didn't have that, <laughs> you know, thing to open it. And so, and so we're walking and the analogy in the, in the dialogue is it's a, it's a, it's a racist issue. So he's saying things to me, oh, that's the way you are, man. You think they all look the same, don't you? And I'm looking at him going, well, they are, they all do look the same, don't they? Huh. And, you know, and we're, and we're doing this thing where it's heating up more and more between us because he knows that I'm a Baltimore redneck and I'm a bit of a racist and he's trying to poke at me and I'm trying to fuel it with him. And so we're doing the scene, we're doing the scene and Barry turns around and, and you know, and we're young and we're, we're young and we're hard, you know, I mean, we're, we're looking to try to one up each other in the eyes of Barry Levinson and blah, blah. And Barry looks, and goes, okay guys, well, what would you want to do different? And so Andre said, well, you know, I mean, I could get a little bit more in his space and, and be more, he goes, uh huh. He goes, that would be different. He said, Daniel. And I looked at him, I said, well, I'm a little bit bigger than Andre. I said, you know, so I don't know if it would look too, you know, stupid of me to try to get up in his face and, and uh, you know, and, and we're going back and forth and everything. And after literally when the whole crew is standing around for five minutes on set, that's a long time. And we're having this discussion for five minutes. So finally I went, Hey Barry, 
What if I just threw the whole thing away like it was a joke? What if I just pretended it didn't matter to me at all? I just kind of said the words nonchalantly and let him get upset. He went, great idea, try that. And he, and he clicked his fingers and pointed at me. And he walked away and I did this kind of more, with, you know, I, don't, I remember the last line of the scene was, with the way you dress, who even knows you're black? You know, which was, which was insinuating that because he dresses so well, he dresses too well to be an African-American. And it was supposed to be a stinging line, and I threw it away. Now, I know, and I knew when I walked off that set, that's exactly what he had in his mind that the minute he said what else. But he knew a secret, and the secret was you can lead him to water, but you can't make him drink. And he knew that if he had motivated us to find that in the creative process with him, that we would have portrayed it better on screen than him just telling us, just throw it away. So he bought us in. And he allowed us to find it with him so that it mattered to us too. And that was a great lesson as a director for me, that I don't just tell actors what to do. I suggest things or steer them in a direction so that they go, hey, what if I, and I go, that's a great idea, try that. And they, and they realize that because they were involved in it, they weren't just being told to do something. They have to be motivated to want to do it. And that was a great lesson that I took from Robinson. So yeah, I, I, it, it, when I made the wisdom to know the difference, um, I made the movie because I promised myself after a certain situation of my sobriety had happened to me, I said, one day I'm going to tell that story for sure. Uh, you know, uh, I, I promised myself. This guy, Bob, who was the first guy, I don't know if you're familiar with the 12 steps of um, Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the yeah, no, absolutely. programs, but um, I was about to do my first fifth step where I'm going to admit to God and to another human being the nature of all my wrongs and go through the laundry list of crap that I've done in my life. And, and, uh, and this guy, he said to me, he goes, you know, I, I, I'm sure that you have lots of stuff, you know, in your past and lots of things that um, you're not proud of. He said, and so do I. He goes, and so I want you to, I want you to, we're going to leave it here today and we're going to go through that list and we're going to make those admissions so that you never have to keep any of these dark secrets again that will lead you to potentially relapsing on, on drugs again. So I said, great. And so he said, let me tell you a little story about myself. <clears throat> he said, I grew up in a, uh, in a trailer park in Chino uh, in California. My mother was a prostitute, and I had one brother. My mother, you know, she was a very, very bad IV-using heroin addict. And often she would turn around and she would say, you know, come on in the house, Bobby. I have to, uh, I have to go to work. You know, she was about to go hit some truck stop and, 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 you know, go down on some guy in a truck for 20 bucks. This is in the, in the early sixties. This guy was older than I was. And so he told her, she told him rather get in the bathtub and get your, uh, get your clothes, get your clothes ready. And we're going to take a bath and I'm going to drop you off next door. And Uncle Phil's, and Uncle Phil's going to watch you. And Uncle Phil was the neighborhood tra trailer owner who was a really, really bad alcoholic. And all she had to do, the mother, was when she was done, she'd buy a little 50 Yukon Jack, whatever it was, and drop it off at Uncle Phil's. And the, and, the, and the kid would stay there. So he's in the bathtub. He's seven years old. She's lathering him up, getting ready to take him over to Uncle Phil's. And she comes in and says, come on, Bobby, let's go. And she says, Mama, I really don't want to go to Uncle Phil's. I don't want to go there anymore. And she said, Bobby, you have to go to Uncle Phil's. Let's go. Get out of the tub and get your clothes on. You go to Uncle Phil's. Mommy has to go to work. Mommy, please don't make me go to Uncle Phil's anymore. I don't want to go there. Why don't you want to go to Uncle Phil's? Because Uncle Phil makes me play the game. And in that moment, the mother realized that her seven-year-old son was being raped by the next-door alcoholic that she'd been feeding him to for years. So she looked at the little boy and she said, you stay in that bathtub, Robert. And you don't move until mommy gets back. Do you understand? And he nodded his head. And I remember him saying to me, you know, my mom called me Robert. I knew I was, the shit was about to hit the fan because she never called me Robert. So I sat in that tub. I sat in that tub. And I sat there for about 45 minutes. And I knew it was a long time because the water was getting cold. And I was getting kind of cold. And then I, I heard the door open up and my mother's heels clicking down the middle of that airstream. And she came in and leaned her head through the curtain. And I looked at my mother and she's just staring at me. And I could see that there was a little bit of blood on her face and blood on the front of her dress. 
And because I was sitting down in the bathtub, I could see underneath her dress because the low angle I was sitting at, and there was blood dripping profusely from behind her dress. And I thought, what happened to my mom? Why is she bleeding? And she stepped past the curtains and lobbed two objects on my lap. They were Uncle Phil's arms. She had hacked them Holy off with an axe from the shoulder down and threw them, and threw them on my lap. She threw them on my lap and she said, don't worry, Bobby. He'll never fucking touch you again. Wow. And she walked out of the room. And as he tells me this, he goes, so anyway, Phil, <laughs> Phil bled to death because my mother tacked his arms off and she did the rest of her life in prison. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make is we're going to leave all those secrets behind you. And he went right back into his pitch of telling me about being on, and I thought, she hacked his fucking arms off with an axe and threw them on the kid's lap in a bathtub when he was seven years old. Yeah, and I no thought shit. I was fucked up and I had a tough childhood. And yeah. So I got in my car from after doing my fifth step and I said, one day I'm putting that in a movie. I'm definitely going to tell that story. And I did a story and I wrote it and no one wanted to make it with me because it was about a, a guy who kidnapped young Latin and Latina her, um, heroin addicts and took them up to Big Bear to a cabin and got them sober. And they knew this guy. <clears throat> and I wrote the script. It was a true, kind of semi-true story. And no one would give me the money. And I said, look, I, I, you know, I can make the whole movie for like you know, 50, 70 grand or whatever. And, and then we'll put some money in post. But let me show you what I can do on this film for a very short amount of money. And still no one would, would give me the money. So I raised the money privately with some other people. I shot the movie for just under 60 grand and then I dumped another hundred into post. It was in 12 film festivals. It won best picture against multi-million dollar films 11 times. I won best picture 11 out of 12 festivals. Um, it's a really cool little indie look at this, at this guy's adventure with this girl up to a cabin and, and him getting her sober. And, uh, you know, it, it's won a lot of awards and that's all great stuff and blah, 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 blah. But I'll tell you one thing that I probably will, well, I, I'd love to do this again, but I know the chances of my doing it again are pretty rare because it's the first time I ever did it. As a result of making a film, I've ended up saving human beings' lives. And I've had people watch the film and go into recovery. Um, I've had people in recovery stay in recovery as a result of seeing the film. I've had the film motivate family members to put family members into treatment. Um, and, and also the... Uh, um, the Sober Recovery Center in San Antonio, Texas, was built as a result of making the film. So I'm very proud of the fact that in, in, in a direct and indirect way, the making of a movie has, has attributed to the saving of human beings' lives. Because you can win all the awards you want, but I can't imagine anything being bigger than that. Right. Number one, that story was fucking shocking and amazing at the same time, but... I'm extremely happy for you. I think the the whole movie it sounds awesome, and I definitely have to see it. Um, but your continued sobriety since you know your, I think it was your tenth stint, and that's what you're talking about with uh, with the sober recovery center, and that, I think that was your last stint. Um, but one of the things you're quoted as saying, and yeah. you kind of just said it right there. You know, there's millions of Americans who suffer from addiction. And uh, if you just reached one person with the film, it would be the biggest reward ever. And it sounds like it, it definitely is. And it's an amazing quote. And it shows you really care about the cause. And it reminds me, when I read it, it reminds me a lot of my friend John Preston that I, uh, I served with in the Marines. John's a musician. And everything this guy does is to raise awareness about PTSD. And it's all about vets that need help. And coincidentally and kind of sadly, um, a lot of those guys that have PTSD, they, they turn to drugs and alcohol to kind of dull the pain. So, you know, I kind of, I, I really want to see the movie because it sounds like you put your heart into it. Yeah. You know, for a little $60,000 job, I, one of my favorite stories about the movie was I got my brother Billy to agree to play, you know, my brother in the film. He's got just a couple of scenes. So I tell him, well, we're coming up on the time where we're going to shoot the movie, Bill and Paul. And he goes, well, yeah, when is that again? And I tell him again and he goes, yeah, man, I don't think I can do that. I'm, I'm getting off this one film in Toronto and I have like four days off. It goes, and then I go right into it. I went, well, no, you can't say now you're not doing it. I go, because you've already said you would do it and you have to fly for at least one day to Texas and do the movie. And so he then turned around and he said, yeah, I am, but bro, I'm sorry. I just, um, if you can figure out a way to shoot me in California, I might be able to. So I had to move 
my whole production, get ready to bring all my camera people and everything and fly people to California to shoot Billy because Billy was going to be a brat and not shoot to go to San Antonio. Oh, so man. I get that already and Billy goes, yeah, I still think I need a few days off, bro. I'm sorry. Can't you just get somebody else? So what did I do? I pulled the torpedo. I called my <laughs> mother. And I said to my mother, I go, I got people to put up this money to do this movie. And Billy said he would do it. Now he's backing out. So Billy goes, okay, honey, I'll call you right back. And so she, she, she gets off the phone. <laughs> Two minutes go by and my phone rings. I look down, it's Billy and I answer it. He goes, you called fucking mom? He goes, you called mom and told mom? But I said, I would do you. I go, did you say you were going to do my movie and back out? He goes, you're an asshole. When did you shoot? <laughs> hey, that <laughs> works. I pulled the mom bomb on him, man. I had no choice. When can we see this movie? I can get you a copy of the movie if you want to see it. It's, it's now with a distributor. You know, there's so much legal crap that they do. I mean, it's a, it's amazing that, uh, you know, they, they um, the contracts that they, and this is the part about the business that I just hire somebody to do all that. I hire a firm to take care of. But I think it's, uh, I think it'll be out on DVD and Netflix and all that stuff before Christmas. It's coming up. All right. Well, you know, I, I can say Lou Diamond Phillips. I can say Billy Baldwin and Daniel Baldwin. You know, but I don't have the one Brad Pitt or the guy that makes you run, you know, supposedly to the box office and go see it or even to the DVD store and they put them on a certain shelf or whatever. So it's a little indie that's a really, you know, dark, cool movie. Um, but make no mistake about it. When If I had $5 million to make it, you know, I could sit there and shoot giant crane shots and helicopters and all this other shit, you know, and make it right. look, you know, better than it is. But it's a, it's a cool story. You, you feel compelled that you're on this adventure with this girl of trying to kick heroin and, and you know, when she's a prostitute and she's being stalked by her, her pimp boyfriend. And, you know, and, 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 and I think you get into the story. So my, it's hard to compete with films. You know, that was the thing from Oliver Stone that I took. You know, Oliver would throw so much money at him because he had that kind of muscle when I worked with him on Born on the Fourth of July. You know, so if they wanted to bring in, you know, two F-16s to shoot a rocket and blow up a tank, they bought an old tank and they bought in F-16s and blew it up. You know, when you have that kind of money, you know, and, 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 you, and you're not doing CGI kind of stuff and you want to have, you know, 20,000 soldiers, go to Thailand to get 20,000 soldiers dressed up in Americans <laughs> and shoot them from a distance and want to run around and shoot each other. It looks really cool. You know, to, I, to me, it's so, amazing. So, you could even, uh, you can even make a movie for basically the price of a Cadillac. Yeah, you can, you can. And not only that, you can make a compelling film, you know, for that money. Are a lot of people going to see the wisdom of the difference? Probably not, but that's where playing the festival right. circuit comes in. So if you've right. made a decent enough film and it wins some awards, when they put those laurels on the thing and you're looking through, scanning through, oh, what's the wisdom to know the difference? Now, anybody that goes to a 12-step meeting knows that that's the third stanza of what's known as the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So if you're one of the 25 million people that are in AA and that, that that title catches you, you might then go in and look. And when you see what in the description, you know, at Netflix, what it's about, you might be somebody who wants to watch that film because it's going to reach you. And, and there's stuff in there and dialogue in there that you exclusively as a member of AA or, or any of the AA ending, you know, societies and groups, you'll know what this film is about and you'll appreciate it more than somebody. Right. That and that's your target. So. so there's a definite, tar yeah. there's a definite target audience for sure. But, but again, had it gone to theaters and I had bigger names, in it if i got 10 million of the 25 million admitted members of aa to go to it that's a 90 million dollar film that's that's a pretty good box office film so yeah you know. maybe for the sequel yeah it, it's definitely set up for um multiple stories uh, um, it was quite draining uh, i learned some valuable lessons doing the film it was quite draining to um to to wear that many hats to be the actor the director and the producer it, it i don't think i'll ever um I'll act in a film that I direct, but I'll take a smaller role. It's, it, it's too much to do at once. And I hated producing. I, I couldn't stand doing that. I'll never produce another film. Well, do you have anything else coming up in the, the pipeline, so to speak? I know you have some new stuff that you acted in. I am. I'm about to shoot a couple of things. Um, I'm going to... Um, there's two things. One, I'm doing with, uh, with Robin, my wife. We're going to do a mm. cooking show. Um, and, uh, and the reason why is because of the way we cook and the, and the things we do together. We go the same day we live in Oxnard, which is in the, um, the farm belt of Southern California. So we have 
hundreds and thousands of acres of, of organic farms all around our home. So we'll go to one of the farm stands and literally piece by piece pick out the two tomatoes, pick out the cabbage, pick out whatever. And we also live on the water, so we fish quite a bit. So um, it, it's, a, it's actually a really great way. I came up with the idea of doing it while I was playing golf with a friend. And, and, and my wife and I played golf together, too. And I said, hey, when we come out next time, we should bring the girls. And he was more of the old school of, do you want to bring your wife to come play golf? And I said, actually, you know what? It's really fun. We sit in the car together and we laugh and we talk and we go through our day. And I have such a good relationship with her because I learned the hard way from sales relationships that communication is everything. And so when we, when, we do our, when we cook together, we cook everything fresh that day and we sit there. And then at the end of the day, we're done with the meal and we sit out by the water outside with a couple of candles and we have a beautiful meal together that we both prepared and spent you know, four hours making together. So I thought, what a great idea to invite another couple over for dinner and do a couple's cooking show. Nice. So we're, we're, we're in pre-production of getting that set up now. Um, and I think I'm going to do, uh, I've got a little pilot about um, a sober living house and some of the crazy antics that go on in the sober living house. I'm going to shoot a test on that next month. Um, and, uh, and I might throw my hat in the ring of doing a talk show. Ooh, yeah, you're natural for it. Oh, I like I that. Ho- I'm going to host my own talk show. I think we're, uh, we have a small, um, production studio here in, in Oxnard that I'm affiliated with called Malibu Films. That's owned by Greg Hanley, the guy who owns, uh, Soba, right? um, all of the Soba re- recovery centers. Yeah. So Greg has put together some really nice equipment in the studio with Robert Ferguson, who owns diet free life. And uh, I'm thinking in the off hours in the evening, I might do a little celebrity, you know, based talk show and and, uh, and host that. I'm, I'm thinking about doing. It. I'm getting old, man. I can't keep flying around doing movies for 16 years. If I kick it off and I get it going, I'll be sure to come on your show. And oh, talk. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Well, hey, thanks a lot for uh, for coming on, Dan. It was great. Take it easy, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. God bless. Infirmary Media.